The chicken curry itself is a recipe passed down by my father. Each time he'd prepare it and we'd sit down to eat as a family, the stories would flow. It became how we understood where he came from, not just through his stories, but in the ritual of eating in the same traditions. Welcome to My Family Recipe, presented by Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Arthi Menon. I'm also the lead editor of the original essay series on Food52. Thank you for joining us as we explore some treasured heirloom recipes and the wonderful people and delicious stories behind them. If you've been joining us through the series, welcome back. We've certainly loved having you around. We love the company. Today, I will be talking with Nyanika Banda. Yanika is a 20-year veteran of the restaurant and hospitality industry. She holds a culinary degree and a bachelor's from the University of Wisconsin, where she studied writing and indigenous foodways. She has a passion for studying the foodways of the African diaspora and has authored Marvel's Black Panther, Wakanda Forever Cookbook. In April 2020, she published an installment of My Family Recipe titled the chicken curry that put my broken family back together again. It's about building traditions and finding forgiveness through a childhood recipe of her father's. Welcome, Yanika. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us. So you begin your essay by writing about how some of your strongest childhood memories were in fact not your own. They belonged to your father. When did your father most like to tell you stories about his childhood? What were the occasions that prompted these? As I say in the essay, it really was when we sat down to eat this curry. You know, he, I think part of the Malawian tradition for men is to not be super emotional and to maybe not express themselves that often. And so when we did sit down as a family, it really seemed to me, even at a young age, that this was where he got the most joy in sharing his culture with us. And what are some of these stories about your father's childhood that still sort of stick out for you? Well, my father grew up in a very rural village in Malawi. It's called the Chituka village. And my my grandparents actually formed the village. My grandfather was the chief um, in the Chituka village in Malawi. And so... For him, coming to the United States um, was a huge change in cultures. And so I think he's always, um, you know, he's always been that kind of peasant kid that ran around barefoot in the village, taking mangoes from Mm -hmm. the trees, um, you know, helping on the farm. My family actually has a farm in Malawi that my grandmother started. So, you know, he grew up very... Um, you know, not, I mean, they were poor, but also, you know, just very humble. And so for him, I think, especially being for myself, being a first generation, a child of an immigrant, I think it's always important for those parents to instill that background to their children. Mm. And you share that your father had all but two entrees in his dinner repertoire. (laughs) Two, two, uh, let's say, vastly differing (laughs) dishes, if you will. Tell us what these were and what they said about your your multicultural upbringing, as you just mentioned, you were first generation. Um, 
and the experiences of your, your parents and your family in America? Yeah, well, my father came on, he came to the United States with his family and they went to high school in New York City, but he got a scholarship at the University of Massachusetts to play soccer. Mm. So he has been exposed to the American culture for a few years before I was born, but he became a coach. And so being a coach, it kept him away from the house a lot of the time. So my mother definitely did a heavy portion of the cooking, but when it was, if she was out for the night, um, you know, I'd say my father's number one go-to recipe was the the hamburger helper. <laughs> and, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's just kind of like a classic dish of the 90s, also like 80s and 90s, you know. So um, that was something we could always rely on him cooking. And so then the other one was also obviously the chicken curry. So, yeah, it is, it's it's definitely is that, you know, uh juxtaposition of um, being African-American, you know, um, the two sides. Yeah, I love that. Um, and the, the chicken curry and Sima, of course, was the, was definitely sort of the, the meal you enjoyed more, but also importantly, the tradition that you really enjoyed. Tell us about this dish, how it's prepared, how it smells, how it tastes. Yeah, so the chicken curry is... Um, very much a traditional type of uh, like peasant stew, if you will. The chicken is braised for a long time. It starts out with sautéing onions and celery and carrots, um, adding adding the chicken. There's tomato um, and then broth. And you know the point is for it to really sit on the stove for as long as possible, so that the meat really falls off the bone. You've created a really great sauce for it. And so that's how the sema accompanies it. The sema is something that you can, you know, dip into the sauce and eat. You can eat it with a chunk of chicken. Um, but the sema really is there kind of as this tool almost to consume the rest of the meal. Um, if that makes sense to you. It, it's, it, you know, it's such a starch side dish, as some people maybe are... are in America, are used to having potatoes as their side dish. Sema is what is accompanied on pretty much every meal in Malawi. It's made from um, maize flour, am I right? Um, yeah, there are two types. You can either, I grew up eating it with maize or cornmeal, um, but certainly um, when I went to Malawi, I realized that cassava and um, cassava flour mm. is a huge staple. Um, my family yeah. farms cassava, so it really, it's either or. And you'd use, like you said, the sima to almost scoop up the the gravy or stew or sort of pick up pieces of, of, of the meat to eat with. So in, in some sense, it, it almost becomes like a vessel or a tool. Yeah, and as a child, that was the most fun part, right? Because you grow up in America and you're taught all these rules about the table, like no elbows on the table, you use your fork in one hand, use your knife in another hand. And when my father would cook, prepare the chicken and sema, we were encouraged to use our hands. And traditionally in Malawi, what you do is you, um, everyone washes their hands before you eat. And we use our hands to eat our food. And so as kids, that was a novelty. And so that was exciting for us that we got this, you know, we got to break the rules, if you will, in terms of following like a knife and fork and spoon and all of that. And it was just, we really got to kind of dig in and enjoy 
the flavors and permission to get to get permission messy. to get messy exactly so this dish was also a connection to your father's childhood as as we were talking about earlier tell us about how this sort of regular meal tradition was an experience that sort of transported not just your father but you as well even though a lot of the stories he told were not immediately familiar to you they sort of worked in transporting you into a a, a different place to different people different experiences yeah i mean i would say that as soon as we would sit down when my father would prepare chicken curry and sima I mean, he a, a glow would come about him and the stories would just flow. And it wasn't even necessarily very specific stories about, you know, his siblings or my grandparents, but it was about what life is like in the village. I would say my, my dad's greatest uh, joke from being a child was, um, how many goats do you have? Because goat is a, a form of currency. So <laughs> the mm. joke... Oh, is is you know someone asks for something, he says, "Well, how many goats do you have?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, so I think as a young person, especially you know, like seven, eight, and nine, to see my father just really let go and be relaxed and smile and laugh, and um, he always—I uh, I mentioned this in the essay—you know, he always indulged in the marrow of the bones at the end of the dinner and would almost make fun of us for not eating all of the meat off the bone, you know, um, because that was considered a delicacy. And I think that's like the great yeah. part of this recipe is because you, you, you simmer it for so long that the meat falls off the bone. So there's the meat and then the bone is like this thing that you're like digging into to find, <laughs> or he's digging into you to find some of us weren't trying to find it, but you know, yeah. um, yeah, so it's almost like an additional part of the meal is getting that marrow out of the stew. But there were so many stories, um, you know, just about, again, like running around in the village, the the playing soccer, that was a huge part of his childhood. Yeah, and a wonderful opportunity for you to connect with, with your father in this yes, way. Yes, exactly. And it was always a, a, a real pleasure to smell that smell because like I said especially I think in that in the late 80s early 90s I think the the roles of men and women were still pretty traditional and so to come home and see my father in the kitchen meant something special yeah and when you were 17 Yannicka your parents decide decided to divorce and you write that at the time Hugh, you know, being a teenager, needed to blame someone and find a way to navigate your your feelings around it. So you blamed your father and his cultural differences, coming to sort of resent qualities that you'd previously cherished so much as a child. Tell us a little bit more about grappling with this enormous upheaval. Um, you know, I think all children that live with parents that end up in divorce, you know, both parents end up having their side of the story. And, you know, I was definitely influenced by my mother's side of the story. And so, you know, as a teenager, it made it was easier, made sense to me to say that it was, you know, my 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 father was the reason that um, their relationship didn't work out. <clears throat> as an mm-hmm. adult, I now see that, you know, there's lots of nuance to relationships and marriage, etc. Um 
But yeah, you know, as a teenager, you have angst and you're trying to make sense of the world. And there is um, a lot of change happening. Um, and so in my mind, there was um, this, uh, it became a disconnect between my father and I. And you write about how you kept your distance from your father for, for quite some time, but eventually you found yourself in his home again. Tell us a little bit about that and how this led to a healing experience for the both of you. Yes, I, I found myself in his house um, with my younger brother and sister. And I would say I think that was the first time we had come together as a family, but without my mom. And um, it was funny because I don't think I expected to cook a meal with my father, but suddenly he he addressed me and said, do you want to learn how I make my curry? Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had worked in some restaurants, so food was definitely of interest to me, and he knew that food and cooking was of interest to me. And... Um, I think I was 18, 19 years old, and that was the first time we'd ever cooked together. And that's that, that was really how that bond started again, is because we sat in the kitchen, we chopped onions together, he showed me how he sautés. I mean, I remember him adding the tomato paste, showing me when that happens. And then, um, you know, it was the holiday time, so things aren't open, so you end up as most of us do, you're sitting at home with your family, watching television, letting letting the yeah. chicken simmer. Um, and that was the first time that he addressed us, not as children, but really almost as equals. And mm-hmm. so, you know, for him to express his love for us, his love for my mother, that the relationship, you know, maybe didn't work out in the way that they had expected, but that doesn't change their love for us and the fact that we are still all a family. And so that moment will always, you know, stay in my mind because I, for a a while, I think I thought, oh, he's giving up on us. Yeah. And so it was, you know, in terms of family recipes and I, as a chef and just as someone who enjoys food, I, what happens when you sit at a table and, you know, our American term of breaking bread so much Mm. can come of that while we're sharing a meal and um and yeah that was the moment that I was able to kind of become an adult and see that you know life is nuanced no one lives a perfect life and it's not even about making mistakes it's just how life goes yeah your own sort of understanding of relationships was shifting, but also your perspective on food was changing and was about to change. How did studying or how has studying the foodways of the African diaspora in the years since further changed and deepened your perspective on this dish, on Malawian cuisine? Well, I would say growing up African-American, growing up in the United States, soul food was supposed to be part of my identity. And I have one parent who's from Africa and another parent who is Black but grew up in New England. So Mm. 
these traditional quote unquote black foods, I didn't actually really grow up eating. And so I had a really hard time connecting culturally and as an identity with what is traditionally, you know, Southern soul food. And so I had to go through a journey, which was discovering that a lot of these foods that we identify as soul food really came came from Africa. And, you know, being able to study um, the cross-Atlantic slave trade, learning that, you know, these enslaved people didn't know where they were going, yet they knew enough to hide seeds in their hair, bring with them what they could to survive. And their survival actually turned into preparing food for Caucasian people. And that really opened my mind more to how I can identify as an as a, an African American and a descendant of you know a first generation African parent and also uh, an African American parent and so that has been my the greatest treasure has been studying the African diaspora in that way and how it's spread. I mean, my studies are definitely not over. I'm so curious about how Africans have. Um, assimilated and also just brought the food and culture to different countries. And in the U.S., it's very, um, it's a foundation of how we eat now is the Mm -hmm. foods that um, the enslaved Africans brought with them. And so now I have a lot more pride in that um, idea of soul food than maybe I did as a child because I didn't grow up eating it. And so I didn't have that connection that I felt I should have had. Yeah. Um, and so the, the curry stew is just, um, for me, it's such a connection to somewhere that up until recently I had never been. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more, but I'm, I'm curious, do you cook curry and seema for yourself often? And what else do you eat with Sima, given that it's such a staple and as I understand it can be sort of eaten um, for breakfast, lunch, dinner, or any time in between. Yeah. You know, I still keep it as a bit of a special occasion. Um, I did have a restaurant for a brief while and as an homage to my father, I did make the chicken stew. I didn't serve the Sima on the menu. I mean, as long as you have a sauce to dip in, then Sima is is appropriate for any time of day. It is for special occasions. We'll be right back after a very short break to talk more with Nyanika about connecting to her father's heritage. Hi. I'm Hannah Forden, Heritage Radio Network's program manager and a producer of this podcast. If you're loving My Family Recipe, I have a few other recommendations to offer from HRN. Everyone has a food story, and Let's Talk About Food is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about pleasure, scarcity, overabundance, all the ways that food delights and disappoints. From our first mouthful of applesauce in front of our adoring family 
to our first bite into a jalapeno pepper and everything in between. For fans of storytelling, this is a podcast you're going to devour. For fans of chef interviews, Inside Julia's Kitchen will introduce you to the bright lights of today's food world. Enjoy rich conversations with Yotam Adelengi, Rodney Scott, Melissa King, and other leaders in the culinary world. HRN is an independent, member-supported, nonprofit podcast network. Listen to these podcasts wherever you're listening now, or visit heritageradionetwork.org to browse our library of 35 weekly shows and more than 15,000 archived episodes. Start exploring at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to My Family Recipe. Last year, in 2020, Mianuka visited her father's home country of Malawi for the very first time. What led you to take that trip, Mianuka, and what were some of your expectations going into it? Um, Well, the trip was very not planned. Um, I have a dear aunt, Rose, who um, lived in New Rochelle, New York, which was very close to where I grew up in Massachusetts. And so she was um, the next closest relative I had from Malawi, and she was known as the chef of the family. And um, we connected over food. And so actually it was about two years ago that I was visiting with her and she was really excited to share with me her recipes because I think some of the things that my father couldn't do as a female, she could. And so she always was very aware of bringing me home traditional clothing, sharing recipes Mm -hmm. with me. She really wanted me to be connected to not just Malawi, but the village itself. And so we, um, the last time we were together, sat over some sima and chicken and uh, some braised (laughs) fish that she made and kale. And we talked about collaborating and making a cookbook together. And it would be, you know, a a Malawian American cookbook. And I was very excited and we kept discussing it. And um, yeah, and a year ago, she ended up passing away. And it was very important to me. Her her wish was to be buried in the village, in the Chituka village. Mm -hmm. And because um, of the pandemic, it wasn't certain that everyone would be able to travel. But it was really important for me to go on that journey and not just to go on that journey, but to go on it with my father. I wanted to accompany him. Mm. And so that was how I ended up in Malawi for the first time. Um, You know, it was unfortunate that was part of her death, but I also think that her spirit really carried me to the village so that I could for once and all, you know, see where they came from and to really experience the culture. That's a beautiful sentiment and a yeah, wonderful way to think of it. Um, you stayed on, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the family farm in, in the I village. Did, yeah. Can you can you describe it for us? Um, you know, it's it, I guess it's it was how my father described it and then even then some. So um, <laughs> very, very modest. All of the homes are built out of clay and brick. There's no electricity. Um, everyone cooks outside, so most folks have what's, you know, kind of an outdoor kitchen set up where you build a fire, and that's how you prepare your meals. Um, 
my grandmother, my father's mother, they ended up moving to Chatuka and it was her vision to start farming. So my family has a farm where they grow cassava, they grow groundnuts, um, citrus like lemon, and they actually help provide mm-hmm. food to the rest of the village. And wow. um, her burial was probably the biggest celebration um, that that village has ever seen, to be honest. we The whole village came... They they butchered a whole cow, and so that means a big deal <laughs> to them there. Yeah. And, you know, enough to feed the whole village, and that's that's what happened. Um, the next day, you know, again, with my father talking about the chickens running around, um, they raised chickens, but they're for food. And so, you know, the time came for one to become our dinner, <laughs> if you will. <laughs> so we just help, you know, kept the children away while the that happened, the preparing of the chicken happened. But yeah. um very, you know, very modest, but also very much, you know, knowing where your food comes from and seeing it. And and that was really beautiful. In addition, plentiful mango trees. I mean my I I've seen my father <laughs> eat a lot of mangoes, but I've never seen that many mangoes in my life and they seem to just almost fall from the sky. Uh you know, a breeze would come and they would just shake the trees and the mangoes would fall from the trees and everyone everyone enjoyed the mangoes, whether it was human or cows or goats. The mangoes were enjoyed by everyone. So it really was just um so simple and so beautiful at the same time. That would be my dream to sit under a mango tree and just have a shower of mangoes sort of fall. Into yeah, it, it was, a, it was very dreamlike to be honest. It really, really was. Um, How much time did you spend there? I was there for two months. With, with your father? Um, my father came back because of the pandemic and his um, health. But it was important to me because it was my first time there that I wanted to make sure that I was able to really, um, you know, spend time and get to know my family. I have my father is one of five children, so I have lots of cousins. Um, some of us grew up in the States and some of us grew up in Malawi. So it was a really great opportunity for me to get to know my other cousins that were all the same age and, you know, grew up Mm. very differently. And so they welcomed Mm. me into their home. And so I got to experience that daily life of, um, you know, what it means to be Malawian. And so I I would say that's how I ate a lot more Sima. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, there was, Another thing that we, I didn't realize, but I mean, Malawi is on a lake, Lake Malawi or Lake Nyanjika. Mm-hmm. And so uh, fresh water fish is also a huge part of the diet. We call it tilapia. Mm-hmm. They're there. It's called chambo. And so um, it can be roasted. It can be salted or smoked. Um, and then, so it's either eaten as like a snack or it's eaten as a meal also mm-hmm. served with a type of sauce, like a tomato sauce. So I would say, you know, I grew up eating the chicken curry, but when I went to Malawi, my favorite thing to eat with the sima was the chambo. Mm. And then secondly would probably be goat because the goat always had like a really great gravy with it. But um, yeah, these were the essentials. I remember my cousin 
<laughs> getting mad at the cook because there was she didn't make a sauce for the to go along with the SEMA one day and she was like, How could she not make a sauce? Uh. Um, <laughs> so it's just yeah, it's, they're just staples. What did you learn about your father from sort of undertaking this trip with him? Oh, I learned so much, some of which I can't uh, say on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, my family actually has lots of um, political roots to Malawi. My grandfather was a diplomat and worked for the government. And um, as I said earlier, my father got a scholarship to the University of Massachusetts, but there was actually a group of Malawians that got scholarships together. And so I got a chance to spend time with my father and his old college mates who all now live back in Malawi. And they're telling this story of when it was time for their graduation. And they all lived in these this apartment complex that I'm very familiar with here in Massachusetts. I, I've had friends that live there, etc. And they were saying that they, for their graduation, got a goat. And they had the oh. goat kind of living in the yard of the apartment complex. All the kids got really into having the goat around. And then suddenly the goat was gone. <laughs> and, oh, gosh. And, you know, so they had a very Malawian traditional supper. <laughs> yeah. Um to the shock and awe of, I think, most of the other residents there. So that was a great story to hear that I had never heard before of like, you know, before I was born, but here in Massachusetts, but also bringing that Malawian culture here. Um, yeah. They, yeah. They all laughed so hard about that, how everyone, you know. The, I wonder where they had to sneak the goat off to. <laughs> yeah, to I, don't, perform, I don't think you they know, snuck it too the far into rituals. this issue. <laughs> <laughs> Much to the horror of the yeah. other <laughs> complex residents. Exactly, exactly. And obviously this was a huge learning experience for you, visiting for the first time, reclaiming, claiming um, some of your roots, your your family's traditions. What what did you learn about yourself that perhaps may, maybe surprised you or that was a more sort of unexpected learning from this trip? I guess there would be two parts. You know, um, I was there during right after the elections and the, as as an African-American living in America, um, I'm always aware of being Black. And when I went to Malawi, that was the first time that that wasn't part of my identity. I mean, it was, but I blended in with everyone. So that wasn't like the thing that defined me wasn't the color of my skin. And so it really gave me the freedom to be me and to be relaxed and to in interact with folks on a deeper level. Mm. And that was really special. And and also, you know, uh, my name is Nanika Banda. I have grown up having to repeat my name to every person that I've ever met. And so to go to a country where I say Nanika and their response is, oh, what, you know, what village are you from? What tribe are you from? There's just this connection there. And that to me was so valuable, so affirming in terms of my own identity. And then... You know, the second part was that it taught me that I have so much more to learn. And I'm really looking forward to going back because, I, you know, Malawi is a small but vast country. And I really want to understand the food of that place and space and understand even more 
um, about how we came about eating those dishes. I mean, you know, a lot of places in Africa, you can kind of see the colonialism. You can see the effect of the British rule or uh, French or Dutch. And um, so there's kind of that, a little bit of a, a, a line where there's traditional foods and then there's foods that clearly have been influenced by Western culture. So I'm really looking forward to doing more study about that in the future. All foods that made their way via colonial pathways. I was reading about, um, again, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I was reading about a, a popular uh, no-cook, well, it's a salad that you call shum. Am I saying this correctly? I don't know. Shum or kachumburi. And it's basically a, a salad uh, and there's versions across different countries in Eastern and Southeastern Africa um, that have chopped tomato and mm-hmm. onion and a, a herb of some description. Mm-hmm. Did you did you grow up eating this? Because it's interesting to me because we call it kachumbar and it's a similar preparation or a chopping of a, a combination of chopped tomato and onion and chili and so I, cilantro. I didn't grow up eating it. I ate it often. I was served that often in Malawi and um, in my in the cookbook, in the in the Wakanda cookbook, I really tried to incorporate because Wakanda is in that region where Malawi kind of is. Um, I actually have a salad that way, and hopefully, I won't get in trouble for saying this. But the editors um, were concerned that that wasn't African enough, <laughs> and mm. you know, and I had to say no. I literally ate this every day when I was in Africa, and yeah, it's a, it's an herb salad with tomatoes and onions and fresh herbs. Um, yeah, yeah, and and so kachumbar is is cucumber, and we make the salad in India, and it's yeah, it's called kachumbar. So I found that very interesting. I mean, that's a huge example of also you know like the Indian yeah. spice trade, or just I mean, um, one thing that I had never eaten so many of was samosas until I went wow. to Malawi. Yeah, <laughs> and I became like addicted to samosas there. So you know. Yeah, I mean, that's why I love studying not only indigenous foods, but foods of diaspora, because, I mean, the world is so connected and we're connected through food. I mean, you can sell so much about history by the the different foods that people eat and how food has traveled around the world. Absolutely. Well, we like to wrap up this podcast by asking our guests if there's something that we haven't touched upon that they'd love our listeners to know anything interesting that you're working on that you'd like to tell us about? Well, definitely keep your eye out for the Black Panther Wakanda cookbook, which will be released in April. I'm very excited and proud of that. And I have used that opportunity, um, to be honest, to take what me and my Aunt Rose had talked about and put it into a cookbook and also incorporate the Marvel universe into it. So you'll see Chambo, you'll see some um, throws to Malawian traditional cooking just because it is part of that area. And um, yeah, I'm really excited about that to come out. And other than that, you know, I'm, I'm constantly writing and cooking and, you know, trying to connect with folks as much as possible through food. Well, we look forward to the cookbook and we are 
so honored that you spent uh, the better parts of an hour with us and, and spent time with us on this podcast. It's been wonderful speaking with you, Nyanika. Thank you so much for listening to My Family Recipe. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to the show and also leave us a rating and review to let us know what you think of the season so far. Special thanks for this episode to Nyanika Banda. You can find links to her essay and her recipe in the show notes. My Family Recipe is produced by Dylan Hoyer and Hannah Fordin. Our Julia Child Foundation Fellow is Kelly Spivey and our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Cora Lee is Food52 Podcast Network's producer. Our theme song is Vittoro by Aeronaut. This show is a collaboration between Food52 and Heritage Radio Network. There's much more to read and listen to. Find even more stories at food52.com and heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, my name is Coral, and I produce Food52's podcast. Now, Food 52 believes the kitchen is the heart of the home and food is the center of a well-lived life. And if food audio is as much the center of your life as it is mine, here are a couple others from our network that I think you'd like. There's Kristen McGlory's 10-year strong Genius Recipes column turned interview show, The Genius Recipe Tapes. Each week you'll leave with a new recipe or technique that will completely change the way you cook. And Counter Jam, hosted by Peter J. Kim. With the help of musicians and food friends like singer-turned-sassier Khalees, podcaster-musician Rishikesh Hirwe, and rapper Ruby Ibarra, Peter seeks a deeper understanding of cultures and the identities we construct through the dishes and songs we put on repeat. Or The Sandwich Universe, a show all about, you guessed it, iconic sandwiches. Hosts and longtime BFFs Molly Boz and Declan Bond partake in philosophical debate, I mean, why even is it called grilled cheese when it's not grilled, take listener questions, and dream up delicious versions for you to try at home tonight. You can find Food 52's podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen.